0: Welcome to the Priority Zero podcast,
1: stories of service. Welcome to the Priority Zero podcast, my name is and today with us we have Mitch Hoare. Now Mitch was an infantryman in the Australian regular army and served four years, also deployed to Timor. He's also a member of Disaster Relief Australians, had multiple deployments around Australia for disaster relief work. So Mitch, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks very much for having me. Really appreciate you having on man. Got a little bit of a lag today, the internet's not working quite well, but uh, we'll persevere on, hopefully it comes out alright.
0: Yeah, no worries. I can
1: hear you alright. That's the You and I met on a deployment with Disaster Relief Australia last year, and uh, we, we got to talking. And, and uh, once I started this podcast, you're someone who I thought of. You shared quite a few stories of your time in the army and through DRA. So I was really, really excited to have you on. But if you don't mind, can we start at the beginning? Tell me a little bit about yourself.
0: Yeah, for sure. I grew up in Echuca, a small country town on the border of the Murray River. So yeah, pretty small town. Just a town kid grew up and um, played footy in the winter and uh we did water skiing in the summertime and then later on when um when we got a bit older my my dad got passed down some land from his dad when he passed away and we moved out to the farm so from like 10 to 24 yeah i I grew up on a farm and um it wasn't like a, a dairy farm it was more like a hobby farm they call it so we had cows on there for grazing and we also had some other farmers around the area that would um, share, farm and grow tomatoes season on, season off. And uh, towards the last part of the years where I was on the farm, we had um, we had a thousand olive trees and we became olive farmers. Yeah, we produced um, olive oil and it was pretty good olive oil. It, um, it got pressed at below 32 degrees and uh, yeah, it was good oil and that's kind of where I grew up.
1: So can you tell me a little bit about your experiences growing up on farm life? I know later on in life you did join the Australian Army. Did any of that active lifestyle kind of prepare you for that role? Was that something that was in your mindset that one day that you wanted to do?
0: I guess um, in the days when you're growing up, you always play army as a kid. You know, you you run around with uh, actual sticks and make the bang noise, you know, like bang, bang. Yeah, playing army. I guess that was always in my back of my mind. I never had aspirations to become that army guy I yeah I just loved being out in the country open plains, and it just entertained me whenever I felt like I needed to just be somewhere I could always go out the back door jump a couple of fences and then I had the open planes and just everything in front of me to entertain me I just
1: yeah really enjoyed being out in the farm yeah beautiful so you grew up on the farm you said you were playing a bit of footy and doing a little bit of water skiing in the summers is that right? Yeah,
0: so played AFL. It's a AFL town.
1: I'm saying AFL because now
0: I live in Brisbane. If they say footy up here, they just automatically assume it's uh, rugby or union. So yeah, I played AFL. My my dad had a pretty good background of AFL. He was really handy. Him and his twin brother played over 300 games for the for the the footy club, and they also represented the the league so the golden valley football league their dad my grandfather was the president of the Echuca Football Club for over nine years and in that era they decided to name a pavilion after my grandfather and it's called the Whore Pavilion. So if you're ever in Echuca and you go down to Vic Park check out the Whore Pavilion and it's named after my grandfather and his, his effort and all his sons that played there.
1: Wow, well, that's actually really really cool. Yeah. So were you academic at all or were you more of a hands-on?
0: Definitely not academic. I, I'm a I'm a hands-on kind of guy. Like, uh, if you gave me a book and uh, tried to teach me out of a book, it would be very difficult. But if um, you gave me an object and it showed me how it moved, took it apart, put it back together, I could do that. Yeah, definitely not academic, more hands-on.
1: Perfect. So once you finished school, what, what did you do? Did you go straight into the Army?
0: No, not at all. So I... Um, yeah, I, I kind of struggled at school. The only reason I was there was because of friends were there and it was a, uh, you had to be there up until I think you were 16 or 16 to nine months. But so in year 11, I finished year 11. I was quite young for my age, finished year 11 at the age of 16. And then I started an apprenticeship with my dad um, as a ceramic wall and floor tiler. I originally wanted to be a, a carpenter and be a builder. Yeah. Make buildings. But dad said, Oh, why don't you just start your apprenticeship with me? And um, while you're working, you can ask the builders for an apprenticeship. I said, yeah, sure. Yep. That's a good plan. It was in a time when there weren't many apprenticeships going. So I just kept on motoring on. He goes, oh, you may as well just uh, finish your tiling apprenticeship. And nowadays, when I look back, I'm like, oh, that's the way he got me. You know, like (laughs) it was all it was all a trick. (laughs) It was all a plan. Yeah. So four years later, here I am. I never wanted to be a tiler. I'm a fully qualified tiler continued to work with dad for a number of years after that
1: okay, so what, what's the difference between a wall and floor tiler and a normal tiler is there a difference
0: Uh so the no there's not really much difference at all so a ceramic wall and floor tiler is the qualification so you get a certificate three in ceramic wall and floor tiling but um gotcha. when you, yeah when you just talk to someone and go oh, i'm a tiler that's that's the same thing but you gotcha. do have roof tilers yeah they're a different kettle fish for sure <laughs> gotcha gotcha
1: <laughs> What was your aspirations? How long did you end up doing that for? I did that. So I did it for for
0: four years as an apprentice. And then I think it's going back now. I reckon I did it for another four or five years with my dad. And and then I kind of thought, why am I doing this? Like, I never wanted to do it. I was kind of handy at it, but it was nothing exciting for me. Seeking something else. Well, yeah. Then I was talking to a friend, and she's a hairdresser. And she came back from she was away. She was my hairdresser, and I said, "Where you been?" She goes, "Oh, I've been over in the states, and I did this uh, summer camp." And my God, tell me about that. And she she told me all about this summer camp, and she taught archery. And I went, "Oh, well, I wonder what I could teach. Oh, what am I good at? Uh, I can I can do water skiing and wakeboarding. Maybe I could do that." Then. I kind of went through a transition of finding somewhere that would take me for wakeboard and water skiing. And then I landed this job with a the, the company called Camp Laurel South. And um, that kind of springboarded me onto my introduction to travelling.
1: Yeah, right. So you actually moved over to the States, is that right? Well,
0: yeah, they give you a three-month visa. So... It was um, back in the day it was run by um, kind of it's the acronym was BUNAC. I think it was kind of like a maybe a religious or a PCYC kind of business and they help, help sponsor you get your, your temporary working visa. So you get a three-month visa and then they give you a month to get out of the States so that you don't take their jobs, as they always say. Gotcha.
1: So how did you find that going from Australia doing tiling to go over there teaching water skiing, which is something you're very passionate about?
0: Yeah, so it was um, – it was a whirlwind. I I originally wanted to go with a mate and then he kept on pulling out and I said to myself, if I'm ever going to do this, I'll just do it myself. So signed everything, did all the interviews and basically pulled the trigger. And I was going into the unknown. I never traveled before. I was on an airplane. I'm like, yeah, Americans speak English, but what's it going to be like? Yeah. And it took a while to get there. It, like it was a big step. So I eventually got to, I flew into New York and then from New York, I got a a greyhound up to Boston. And then the camp that I was employed with had a, um, a bus in Boston and they, they picked us up from there and drove us up to the camp in, in Maine. And that's oh. when, um, yeah, I, I, I went to this camp and I met all these Americans and there was a lot of Canadians there as well and a lot of international staff. And lo and behold, I was the only Aussie male there. It was, uh,
1: it kind of worked in my advantage. I was going to say that must have worked to your advantage of being only Aussie male. Yeah. Good good experiences over there then? Yeah, definitely.
0: Definitely good experiences. And I adapted to a new environment that I didn't know about. I, uh, yeah, made some great mates. I still talk to them today. It's been over 20 years since I was there. 2002 was the first year I went. Um, had a really good time and then came back. So I'd spent pretty much four months in the States teaching wakeboarding water skiing at summer camp to kids. And then i travelled for a bit. And then... I make my way back home and then I work as a tiler again and then I make enough money to go again. The second time I went over, I was really chuffed with it. So I told a friend and then he came over with me and then we had a blast. And then 2004 was the last year that I was over there, I kind of, yeah, been here, done that and um, decided, you know, I need to do something else.
1: Yeah, so a good good opportunity to grow as a person over there as well and get those core experiences, I suppose
0: yeah definitely and open my eyes to how good we have it in australia i I traveled all across um or down the east coast of the state so i went through a lot of different demographics i can see how great we've got it here versus they've got it there they have some great stuff but still always weighing up you know you kind of size up what country's better what you know all this kind of stuff so for me australia is great compared to
1: what they've got there they've got some good things the freedom that we have is just fantastic no, that's really good to hear so after you've done your last enter in america and you've come back to australia did you go back to tiling
0: well for a little bit i did and after traveling i'd been to new york right i had been to all these other big cities and i came back to small old echuca and i'm like oh this is not going to cut it anymore like i know everyone here you can't get away with anything and I'd grown as a, a young guy, you know, I'm 25 now. I've grown a bit and I'm like, you know what? Yeah, I can't live in this town. So I moved to Melbourne and um, started tiling down there. had a few connections. And then um, I got away from tiling and I started to do steel fixing. And that was great. And then I'm like, right, what else can I do while I'm steel fixing? And I I started to study a Cert 3 and 4 in fitness because I wanted to be a personal trainer. And the main reason I wanted to be a personal trainer is so that I didn't have to pay for a gym membership. Fair enough. (laughs) Yeah, so you could always go to the gym and go to the gym for free. And this is where my journey of eventually joining the Army started because I, doing the course, the Cert 3 and 4 in fitness, I met A friend of mine and he was in six rar years ago and he was talking about the army and i was interested anyway we finished the course and we we became mates and then i helped him get a job as a steel fixer after we did the course i was doing it at the same time and we worked together and it was amazing he'd tell me all these six rar stories about when he went to timor and he did this and he ran around with a machine gun i'm like a machine gun yeah Let's. I want to play with a machine gun and um yeah, tell me all this stuff. And then probably like a year went by and then uh, the relationship I was in kind of like petered out and I kind of had enough of being a steel fixer. I I played in in Melbourne, you know. i had been out. I would discovered Melbourne inside and out and I was just like, you know what? I think I could be a rifleman. Yeah. And then I went and enlisted in um 2008.
1: How old were you at this point?
0: I was 30. So yeah, I was quite old for a, a rifleman, and that and that kind of came up on the interview when I was getting interviewed at the um, enlistment place.
1: That that was going to be my next question. <laughs> was yeah. ever brought up by the recruiter? What what were their opinion coming in at 31 going into a role that's normally a young man's game and that's quite physical?
0: Yeah, well, I was quite. I think when I look back at my time now, from a, the age of 28 to 32, I would say that that was my physical peak. Oh, and before I. Enlisted in the army. I was doing triathlons. I was a steel fixer and I was also a personal trainer. So I was quite fit and I was knowledgeable on good food. So I wasn't just stuffing uh, crap food in my face. So I was quite, I looked after my body. But yeah, the comments of, um, Hey, you're a bit old. What, what, why now? I kind of just explained it was a, it's, it's always been an itch that I had to scratch. And at this point in time, I had a relationship that finished. There was nothing holding me back. I'd travelled, living in Melbourne was great, but I I needed something else. And the stories that I heard from my mate just kind of spurred me on. And I'm like, yep, I think this is for me. I'm going to go be a rifleman. What
1: was the reaction from your parents when you first told them? (laughs) Yeah, so I called them up and I said, you know, hey,
0: mum, dad, uh, I've enlisted into the army. And they go, oh, okay.
1: Is that something you want to do? (laughs) So it was a bit of a surprise to them.
0: Yeah, it was, and um, well, they had they had no real rebuttal, you know, like I'm an adult. They can't like I've been living out of their house. I've been living away from their town for a few years now. I've been becoming my own person, and and they just kind of had to accept it I don't know if um my brother was pleased maybe maybe I I don't it's a good question I should ask him what his thoughts were when I first let him know yeah yeah was it
1: before you went from your recruiter until you left for that first day at basic
0: it was probably like only two months it was quite quite a quick turnaround I remember they said oh okay yep you did your aptitude test yep all good go do this fitness assessment at the barracks just uh, a couple of blocks away from the recruitment center and um that was my first sort of engagement with military there was this guy there and he was in cams and you know he's kind of rigid and went in there and there was other kids and other people doing this basic fitness assessment so yeah I did that and then he said yeah good or good come back in a month because your your enlistment date's not not inside your it's only valid for four weeks and then if if you don't get go in before, then you have to do it again. So I had to come back and I did it. And the second time, I just I'm like smashed it because I wanted to do well, right? <laughs> and then yeah, um, I think it was June twenty second. No June June fourteen because I think my brother's yeah my brother's birthday is on June fourteen. And I remember going oh that's his birthday and that's the day I'm going in. And I just it was so May is my birthday
1: May tenth yeah so I just turned thirty one and then I went in. So all the people that you're trying out with at that time, doing your physical fitness test, were you the oldest person there? <laughs> yeah, without a doubt. Like <laughs> I was, I think I might have even been older than the
0: the instructor who was taking us there, and he's just without looking a, at me, going, "What's this old black doing?". How,
1: how did that make you feel? Did that deter you at all, thinking maybe I've made a mistake?
0: No, not at all. I think I was quite centered. You know, like I I was comfortable with my body and my my so-called adult choices at that time, and there was no one telling me I should go do this. I was the only one telling me I should go do this. So when I saw the younger people there, I'm like, oh, yeah, I get it. You know, I was quite comfortable in my own skin. So it didn't bother
1: me. Perfect. Talk me through uh, going to Kapika for the first time.
0: Yeah. So I was, I was kind of a little bit, I don't know, a little bit sort of really raw. I really didn't know what I was getting myself into. I just I just enlisted. Even on the day that we left, I, I didn't really I didn't really dress like the other recruits that were there. They, they were in suits and ties. I'm like, I thought we were going into the army. Why would you need to be wearing suits and ties? Yeah, we got on this bus and I, I expected to be like barked at, yelled at, like really really rigid sort of um military sort of talk. But we got on this bus and it just We drove all the way up to um, Aubrey, Wodonga, and we stopped for snacks on the way, and and then we got to Capica, and we went through the gates, and then the bus pulled up, and we saw these guys in these funny hats. They had these, now that I know what they are, but they were were flat hats, and I'm like, why would you have a flat hat like that? And the way that they were stomping around, who walks around like that? Anyway, we got barked off the bus, come over here, stand here, put your bags down here, come over here, and then I'm like, oh, this is on. It's on. So we got kind of um, marched into a room and we got checked off that we were there, our names, and um, we had to declare if we had any knives or any, like, guns or anything because apparently some people at recruits bring knives and guns. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Jesus. There was a few people there that had pocket knives, and they took those away from them. And then, yeah, we pretty much grabbed our bags, and then we got marched off to our uh, our lines. And then, then it started. That was the start.
1: Nice. And talk me through a day at Kapuka, What someone that you know is interested in joining the defence force and coming into the army, what can they expect in the day of the life of the recruit?
0: Yeah. So if you're going down, like it's a different world. It's it's a, there's this long hallway. You get you get pigeonholed into a room with uh. Three other blokes, or if you, if you're a girl and you join, you'll be in a room with girls and it's this long hallway. You, the first week, they call it cuddles week. The corporals or the bombardiers, they don't really yell at you too much. They just start to, to progress you from civilian to, to military. Yeah. They've got a program and they just kind of ease you in. Second week, they go right now. No more cuddles it's the real shit let's get to business and they start to bring out your f-bombs and your c-bombs and they start to tear your face off and they really start to whip you in shape and you start turning green you start to get to you get regimented and you start walking and talking like they do and that's what they want so yeah week two you start to move around like them and then week three week three you wake up in your bed and you go oh yeah okay i'm still here <laughs> so yeah and then you keep pushing on and there's There's certain things that you start to get used to and you, um, start get used to holding a rifle and the people that you're around. And then I had aspirations of doing really well and I wanted to, I wanted to perform the best that I could. So I got pretty, pretty, I was pretty handy and fit with a lot of things, but there was this thing they were scoring us and that you could get a, an award for best at PT. So I'm like, yeah, I want to get that. So I did really well at all the PT stuff and there was um, some other one best best recruit something like that and some other award but um you get all these points and um yeah i got i got best of pt at the end and i was i think i was like two points off being best soldier but i, I stuffed up on the navigation test and it dropped my points down yeah. and it was quite embarrassing because i years before i was quite handy at um, navigation but i I'd learned the civilian way not the military way, and it was hard for me to do that transition. And then,
1: yeah, I finally marched out 82 days later. So it's about three three months, Kapuka, is that right?
0: Yeah, it was when I was in from in the years of uh, the noughties. So 2008, I went in and it was 82 days.
1: How did you go? Because you went in as a rifleman. So I believe as soon as you come out of Kapuka, you get sent to your unit and then you go to Singleton. Is that right?
0: Yeah, so depending on what you... um what craft you want to do if you're a chef or if you're a musician if you're i don't know a truck driver then you go off to that respective school um they call it iets initial employment training and riflemen go to singleton that's rifleman school but they they call it the school of cool because uh it's cool because you get a lot of things to play with that go bang like you get you get guns you get to shoot stuff you get machine guns you get to use rockets you get to use grenades you get to use claymores all kinds of things that go bang so they call it the school of cool and um when we got there they didn't have a spot for us to start training us. so we actually were held in holding platoon for three weeks They knew that we were there, they looked after us, but they didn't really give us the attention that we were there for. So after that three weeks or towards the end of the three weeks, they gathered us around and said, look, you're going to get posted out. Where do you want to go? You can choose Townsville, Brisbane or Darwin. So I put my preferences, first preference was Brisbane, second preference was Brisbane and third preference was Brisbane. And lo and behold, I got Brisbane.
1: (laughs) Oh, nice. (laughs) It actually worked out. (laughs) <laughs> that doesn't happen too often no i and i kind of knew
0: like it, it it really didn't matter you you get you get told where you're going anyway right so i just was like you know what i'm gonna do this and you know it's not really my decision anyway but luckily enough we got Brisbane so yeah we most of my platoon that i was with, At Kapooka, we went to um, the newly formed, re-raised 8-9 Royal Australian Regiment, and it's at Gallipoli Barracks here in Brisbane.
1: Perfect. And tell me your time coming out of – actually, let's go to Singleton first. Tell me about some of the experiences that you had in Singleton, some of the most memorable moments that you had there.
0: At Singleton, yeah, we we – pretty much did daily PT and we did because we were only there for the three weeks and we did basic fitness assessment every Friday and we did heaps of stomps and we did tab data on our, all our um machine guns and um rifles and how to how to stomp, how to pack a pack, all that kind of stuff. But then yeah, when we got shipped up to Brisbane, that's where we started our IETs. And um we'll we'll considered well, we weren't fully qualified yet. So these guys had to whip us into shape and turn us into riflemen. We kind of got dicked around a fair bit because we were getting trained in the battalion and not too many riflemen get trained how to be riflemen outside of the school of cool.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right.
0: Yeah, so basically 8-9 grew their own riflemen and um, they didn't want to look weak by growing their own, so they really grilled us and gave it to us. And I'm not too sure... Because I, I, di- I didn't do the School of Cool. I'm not too sure how different it was. I think we got all the skills that we needed to perform our tasks.
1: And um, we did mention when we spoke earlier before we started recording the podcast, you did have the opportunity to do some a deployment overseas. Is that right?
0: Yeah. So, it was, um, so 2008, we kind of marched in and then we refined our skills. We grew ourselves as, so that we could work as a section and then a platoon and then as a, a company. So we'd grown now big enough and it's 2010. We were big enough now. We had, um, Alpha company and Bravo company and a, de- a deployment for eight, nine had come up and it was our first hit out as a re-raised rifle sort of, um, Italian. We went over to East Timor and it was an eight, eight month, um, deployment, but they split it in half. So they gave the first four months to Alpha company and the second half to, um, Bravo company and. Before we went over, we did our MRE, so MIDI missionary mission readiness exercise, and they put you through the ringer. So they, they, they try and train you for, for what to expect when you go overseas before you go. So you touch up on all, all your skills and they kind of select their team. It's basically kind of like footy we've got these this many bikes um, let's select our team and weed out the ones that are not going to be good or the ones that are going to be great let's put them on the team so you do that and then um yeah sure enough I think it was um March 2000 2010 we went over to East Timor and we flew we, we flew in on a, a civilian plane and I'm, I thought we would have had a military plane, but it was just a civilian plane and we're in civilian clothes and we, we pretty much just walk off the plane and, uh, we're in civvies and we didn't need a passport. They just checked our military ID and then we're in the country. <laughs> and I, I'd traveled before, I'd traveled a lot of places before and you always needed a passport. And it was a bit like, Oh, okay, that was too easy. So, <laughs> you know, 50 guys just rocked up with all the kit and then we um went and got shacked up and then pretty much the next day we were in our army uniforms just um we had to do a i'm doing air quotes right now they said oh you need at least a week climatization and uh the captain at the, that was our um our boss is like yeah cool we'll go for a stomp we'll go for a light run and uh we put webbing on and we st- we we ran up the hill right beside it and and we went from Brisbane to, to the equator, basically, and the temperature was astronomically different and the humidity, and we were just all blown out of the water. and Then we pretty much had to recover the next day before we get in. But, um, yeah, so then we started our four-month deployment in East Timor.
1: What was your thoughts when you first got to the country where you, I know a lot of people join the army and they do four, five, six years and a lot of them don't get the opportunity to be able to use their skills out of a training exercise where you, whereas you got the opportunity to go over and actually use a lot of the stuff that you've been training for.
0: Yeah, so as a older guy, I'd travelled a fair bit and I'd been to some countries that are developing countries slash island countries and I kind of knew what to expect. So. When we got on the ground, my vision of the country we're in, I'd kind of seen before, so it wasn't a shock to me. Um, speaking to some of the other guys, had never left Australia before, and um, it really opened their eyes. They're like, why do they have why do they have chickens everywhere? Why do they have um, fires every morning? There's little fires burning. Why do they do this? Why is there little little trinket stores on the side of the road? And and it was, it opened their, their eyes. They'd never been to a developing country before. And so that was my first perception and some of the guys, but then quickly realised that the message that we'd been given and the reason that that we were there was two different things. It was it was kind of sold to us that it was going to be, yep, peacekeeping, but we need to be ready and hyper vigilant and reactive but professional and you know there could be a time where we might need to just be we might get a red card and we might have to just act as riflemen and 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 take out the enemy but um we soon worked out it's about week two and the president told our officer in command that they didn't want us patrolling with rifles anymore because we're scaring everyone and then we were like oh hang on well what's the what's the overall mission yeah, what's
1: this threat that you've been talking about, I guess?
0: Yeah, there was, well, I, I don't actually know what the threat was. It was just, it, there was um a few, a few people that always wanted to overthrow the government and were always told not to go to the far west towards Indonesia. Like, don't go that way. You can go pretty close, but don't go close enough to be seen because the Indonesians will kick up a stink. But that's it gets kind of political because that's where a lot of stuff happened back in the late 90s. So there was that as well. So don't go and play over there because you get in trouble. But um, and then the president's telling us don't display your um. They call them long arms. Don't don't patrol with your long arms. So we we started patrolling with just there was a couple of us that had pistols. That was it. And it kind of felt a bit shaky, bit. But then after a while, you kind of got used to that and yeah the threat level was really low it was yeah it was peacekeeping there was never that overarching thought that it was going to blow up and we'd have to react. Can you share with me some memorable moments within that deployment? Yeah so it was kind of funny funny for me but not for the guys in the back so I I, I got qualified on the 6Bs so a 6B is like a four-wheel drive but it's just got six wheels and i would driven in some countries that were developing countries before but so I got I got qualified on a 6B, so I sat beside, the corporal would sit beside me and I was driving. So I knew where we were going and I could see the road, but the guys on the back, they can't see where we're going because they're sitting sideways. And at any one stage, when you drive around Timor, if you drive along the coast, it's windy. And um, the four guys on one side could be looking out of the ocean, but the other four guys on the other side are just looking at a cliff face, zooming past their face, basically a metre away from their face. And I'm turning as well, dodging goats that are on the road, other road users, motorbikes. And the rule of thumb there is if you can't see around the corner, what you would do is you'd toot the horn before you go around to let people know you're going around. And that was a new thing to me. And we had nearly had collisions because I wasn't tooting, didn't know, and they were tooting. But yeah, some of the guys, when we'd stop, they'd throw up because that just that inertia of winding roads. Yep. Winding roads and, and just having a cliff face, um, zooming past your face. And sometimes it would have looked like the end was hanging over a cliff because the roads there, yeah, they're, they're not like our roads at all. They, the tarmac like the bitumen stops and that's where the cliffs start. So, yeah, there were some fun times there. (laughs) They they always wanted me to slow down, but I was under command by my corporal, so I had to just go the speed he wanted me to go.
1: (laughs) Yep, I I completely understand. Being the age you were uh, on this deployment, having all that life experience that you had, you know, of travelling and growing up at a farm, and you know, having worked several different jobs before you came in, you know, you were, as you said, you're in with guys who are 17, 18, 19, straight out of school, or sometimes even signing up with parents before before finishing school. Did you find being in a developing country that they would come to you for advice? There was occasions
0: there there was a few guys that gravitated towards me and I only realised it after the fact that they gravitated towards me for a few reasons. I think because I could answer some of the questions about, you know, a developing country. And also I I was someone older that wasn't superior to them. So So
1: more of a father figure, I guess, kind of mentality as well. Yeah. They
0: kinda they called me grandfather time because I was, you know. I was a decade older than him. Yeah, there was times I can remember there was one time we were in, we were on quick reaction force. So I don't know if you know what that means, but some of the listeners might know what it means. But yep. you're, you're a platoon and you get put on in a situation where if there's something happening, we're the guys that get called out because it's our rotation. And you've got to be in a state of readiness, but usually you get given orders um, of a situation and then you get put on five minutes notice to move. So you get your orders, the situation's this, go square away your shit, and this is what, what's gonna happen. And when I say go, you've got five minutes to sort your shit out and we're going. So we got one of these. There was a conflict over on the, towards the um, Western border there. There was a report that people were getting shot. We don't know if it was Indonesians shooting the Timorese or not, but we, our mission was to go over and a couple of Blackhawks and we we're going to take out the injured people our rules of engagement where if you saw someone lift a rifle towards you, you're um, clear to engage. We've got, got all this information and then we had our orders and then our lieutenant left and our sergeant left and our corporals left and here's all the riflemen just sitting there going, shit, that's real, that's happening. And a couple of the younger guys in my section come up to me and be like, so so like my last name's hor so they'd say hey Hoary." um so when rules of engagement when we if someone lifts up their rifle at us we're allowed to shoot right and i'm like yes we just were told that and you've done the same training as me so it's okay okay all right and they just they needed reassurance even though that i still needed reassurance as well but i guess they were younger and greener and it was real to them It was real to me but They they came to me and asked me for reassurance. And I'm like, yeah, reassurance
1: and clarity, I suppose.
0: Yeah, a bit of clarity. And I had to remind myself, you know what, guys, we've all done the same training. We did the same training together and we'll be together. So back each other up. If you see something, I've seen it too. If you see this, you see that, let's back each other up. And all night we were kind of just flexed out, waiting for that call, waiting for that call. And then sure enough, the next morning came and the call didn't come. And we we're all kind of like a bit pissed off because <laughs> we we're g up we we're ready to go and yeah you've been training
1: for this you're on your first deployment you, you yeah. had to go
0: we were yeah we were we wanted to, and we were keen to use our skills and we wanted to from the orders we were given we were going to go and help people that was that was my main reason for actually joining the army i wanted to be someone that could help others i didn't want to I, I didn't join because I, wa- I wanted to be a master at rifle. Being a rifleman and start killing people. That's not what I joined for at all. I wanted to help people. And I'm like, yeah, this is it. We're going in. But yeah, the the situation changed and we didn't have to be called on to go out.
1: Do you remember that feeling that you first got when they told you this is a possibility? You know, you're on the QRF, you're on five minutes notice to move and they gave you that brief. Like, what was going through your head?
0: I was given orders by my corporal sort of separately. He spoke to me um, and I just remember the things going through my head was just do what he says. And he gave me specific actions to do once we stepped off the Blackhawk. And from there, then I would have been given more orders. And it was clear. It was clear in my head what I had to do. I had the radio on my back. I knew that I was, what position I'm going to be in on the helicopter. I knew what I needed to do as soon as we got off the helicopter and from there it was clear to me but I was quite comfortable and it was all clear to me. So I wasn't there was no feeling of I don't know. I wasn't uh, I don't know how to say And just kind of like game I face ons Yeah, yeah. I was I was serious. I was in the zone, but I wasn't anxious or I'm like,
1: yep, when it happens I'll just game on. And you said you spent four months in Timor. Is that correct in total? Before yeah, coming so back. Yeah, we did four months and then we came back.
0: And Bravo, Bravo, took. they came in a week before we left, so we kind of did a, a bit of a handover takeover with them. And then we handed it over to them. And I think Bravo, 8-9 Bravo, was the last full-time regiment to be there. And then the Chocos took over after us.
1: So once you come back from Timor and come back to Australia, what was your reflection on Timor about the time that you spent there?
0: It still resonates with me today. My reflection was it was a great hit out, great, like, first hit out for a newly formed regiment it it flushed out a lot of things um, and I I believe we did we completed what we were tasked to do when we were there and yeah it it also when we got back we kind of felt like we were real soldiers now we'd done a deployment even though it was peacekeeping we'd done a deployment we kind of notched yeah, put a notch on our belt. And then I think not long after that, we started training again and then there was talks about going over to Afghanistan. So then we almost finished that ex, that uh, deployment, came back, started to ramp up our normal training again. And then, yeah, end of 2010, we'd been told that we're going over to Afghanistan. Perfect. So did you end up doing a tour of Af- Afghanistan? No, I didn't. I, I ended up – end up um. Because I yeah, I ended up becoming sort of injured. So I, I stuffed my back when I was in Timor and I just thought it was because um, I was driving a lot and we had shit beds and I just needed a massage and a good bed and then I would be fine. But it worked out that I would a prolapsed disc in my back and the second weekend I got, I got back in country, I pushed out the disc that far that I couldn't walk two metres. I literally couldn't walk. I had to lay on the ground. And... um and wait like half an hour before the pain would subside. And then I could walk another two meters. Um, so I was kind of, yeah, I was broken for about uh, a month before I got operated on. And then I got operated on and it's the operation was a good success. They took out part of my disc in my L4 five. And then I was on the road to recovery and I was, um, sort of, I was told that I was going to get promoted. I'm like, yeah, cool. And you're going to go do a promotion course. Sub two for corporal. And then I said, Oh, that's, that's usually the second part. They go, Yeah, would, with the courses coming up. So you just go do that. And then we'll promote you to, um, Lance Corporal. And then you can do the other one later on. We want you to be promoted so that you can be a corporal when we get to Afghanistan. And I was chuffed. I'm like, Yeah, this is awesome. So yeah, my back was starting to get good, doing well, doing really well. And then I was on the promotion course and, um, I went, I went and, um, grabbed the, a metal star picket out of the ground because we're doing um map map orders. You had to give orders from the map. Anyway, I needed something and I grabbed this star picket out of the ground and I just I pulled it out of the ground the wrong way or something and I just tweaked my back again. And about two hours later, I'm in the hospital. I'm in the gimpy Hospital on morphine and I'm just like, oh man, I've just stuffed my back twice now. And that kind of the promotion was gone and my prospects of getting better quick enough to go to afghanistan we're kind of gone i think now if i look back i probably could have got myself fit enough to go but i didn't want to be deployed and then get into an engagement and go to ground and not get back up again you know just exacerbate my back again while on deployment and then become that bag of shit that everyone has to look after while you're getting engaged by yeah, the you, don't, you don't
1: want to be a liability to your team i can understand
0: yeah that. that's exactly right so i kind of I identified that and I said, look, I don't think it's fair for me to take up someone else's position that's going to be fitter. And that kind of spiralled down. And then, where was it? about but Yeah, so March 2012, I discharged.
1: Yeah, so you got, got to a point you thought that was enough with your back. And I mean, you don't want to push yourself so far that, you know, for a lot of people, Army is not a career forever. You don't want to push yourself to a point that you're going to be destroyed that bad, that it's going to affect your civilian life after and your job prospects and things like that as well.
0: Yeah, definitely. And something I haven't really spoken about in this whole conversation, I before I enlisted, like a month before, I had struck up a new relationship with my now current wife.
1: So and she was with you through this whole... Yeah. Thing. So that's
0: another story I can tell you about. <laughs> but long story short we'd been together for that whole four years and we worked out that we'd actually only been together contact time for two years because i was always away training doing um my deployment and then we had 2011 we had floods as well so i was away in um i forget the town's name or just west of here in brizzy grant grantham yeah the floods in grantham so i was away there as well. And my wife came up to, well, my, my girlfriend came up to me and said, I'm ready. And I'm like, yeah, cool. Ready for what? (laughs) And she said, I'm ready to be married. And I'm like, Oh, okay. Just
1: a, just a subtle hint.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I was, yeah, it was, and this, at this time, I, I still had aspirations to be, be in the army and, and go places and do stuff, but. And I also felt that it wasn't fair to her. I'm like, I said to myself, do I either marry the army or marry this girl? And that promotion had gone, Afghanistan had gone, and my back was kind of messed up. And I'd went to a bit of a dark place too because I went into depression. And I'm like, you know what? It's not fair to drag this beautiful girl through this anymore. I think I should marry her and I should dump the army, you know, get rid of that girlfriend and get this good one. So that's that's kind of what we did in March two thousand and twelve. Eventually got discharged and then um June during that year we got married. So
1: it'll happen very quickly. So you spent about four and a four and a bit years in the army in total, I suppose?
0: Yeah, just just under. Just under. Yep. Because I got medically discharged, I was I think I was about Two months short of the four years, but they still gave me my four-year gong because I got medically discharged, and they they could see that I was. If I didn't get medically discharged, I probably would have been there longer anyway.
1: Yep, fair enough. So discharged out of the army, married the girlfriend. Where to from there?
0: Well, I kind of I kind of was a bit lost after I got out. Here I was, this rifleman that was a bit broken, and still still today a bit broken. But um, yeah, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I got back into outdoor education and then i was sick of sick of sleeping on the ground it reminded me of being back in the army so i chucked that in and then i i decided to pursue um becoming an arborist i started an apprenticeship in um, horticulture and um i I was good at that because i'm a quite good well i was a good rock climber and fear of heights up in trees with the chainsaw wasn't a thing for me it was cool and i progressed quite fast but my boss was dodgy so dodgy and it was a point where Uh, I just need to leave this place because I don't want to be in front of a coroner because someone's going to die. So I got out of that. And then I landed a job in sales and I'm still in sales today. But um, there was a bit of an empty spot there. And in 2018, I saw this TRA thing, Team Rubicon and they're offering free first aid and I needed it for my job. I wanted my first aid. So I went along And I'm like, oh, what's this Team Rubicon thing? Anyway, long story short, I joined Team Rubicon and I was around like-minded people. I was around other people that were not Army. They were in this thing called Navy and Air Force and had never seen any of those kind of people before. Yeah, and then so now I've been with TRA and it's now called DRA. It's been with DRA since 2018. And I guess that's where we, we come to a point where you and I met And it was August last year in Echuca, where I'm from. Exactly.
1: So DRA is Disaster Relief Australia that provide disaster relief, Asia Pacific and actually anywhere around the world. And we go we're rapidly deployable anywhere for the recovery phase of any disasters, which is where we met, Mitch. So we had briefly met in Darwin for like a couple hours before. And then on the deployment, uh, you know, when I first landed on the ground, we kind of saw each other and I guess at one point after a few hours it kind of clicked I'm like you look familiar and I think you said the same thing to me like what's your name and we started chatting I'm like holy shit we've actually met before in Darwin very briefly
0: yeah that's right like uh I was up there at my father-in-law's place and he wanted um some palms cut down and I didn't have a chainsaw but I knew there was a, a DRA team up there that had chainsaws so I just reached out and you happened to helped me out and yeah. we got a chainsaw and that's yeah that's right we, we first met and then the next time we met was in Tatura at the race club
1: yeah correct so yeah we're well, there uh for flood recovery uh so we did what Chitura Echuca uh and just the surrounding areas there
0: yeah Rochester was Rochester to, yeah I think I think of all the towns I think Rochester really caught it the hardest the fastest
1: yeah it was It was quite inspiring being there, being my first deployment. And um, those people have had it hard for many, many years. Um, Mm -hmm. They've been through quite a few floods in recent history. Mm -hmm. Uh, And just seeing the resilience of those people was quite inspiring, just losing everything, rebuilding, losing everything, rebuilding. And, I mean, it hits home for you a little bit more because that's where your family's from. That's where you were born, I'd imagine. The Chuka area.
0: Yeah, totally. Oh. I called, I was talking to mum and dad for the whole lead up of that flood. And it was the, they call it the um, blue sky flood because there was no rain. It was all upstream and it was coming down, but there was blue skies. It was quite, yeah, it's a bit of a phenomenon to have a a blue sky flood. And and here I am saying these words, blue sky flood, and it's a thing. And yeah, I'd been to Rochester thousands of times because we played footy against rochester and i had friends that lived in rochester and i called them as well before the flood came i'm like it's gonna come guys you think you'll be all right and then yeah it came and then i'm like i've got to get on this deployment because i just need to i need to help my my friends out and i'm part of dra so fortunately it worked out and i could get down there and i was on a strike team and we we did a bunch of work moved people's crap we helped people out and it was uh, a good deployment
1: yeah clear clearing out houses removing floors removing walls doing damage assessments we had a aerial damage assessment team there with drones i was deployed as a public relations officer we had psychologists and, and mm. you know mission commanders and a whole imt set up and the, the day that i flew into melbourne and then drove to Chichura was the last night the forward operating base was in Chichura. yeah and the next day we had relocated the whole base (laughs) yeah I'm talking everything and then we moved it to Ichuka and that was a mission just in itself like logistically Mm. it was it was wild but it's so inspiring to see everyone work together and I suppose the bad side is it I guess it took away a little bit from being able to get our feet on the ground and, and help a lot more but we needed to move closer to the work because it saved 45 minutes driving either way you know 45 minutes in the morning five 45 minutes in the afternoon so you can kind of see how that was beneficial it's uh yeah, it was i, I enjoyed it, was, it
0: it was no mean feat like like you said we we basically lifted a whole platoon of people and cleaned that place too so we left it better than what we found it way <laughs> and, better I,
1: yeah oh i did some disgusting
0: things cleaning that place oh. <laughs> and then yeah and then we relocated and then we wormed ourselves in there and in a echuca Actually, to let you know, just across the road where we set up our forward base there, my grandfather lived on the corner. That oh, was, really? Yeah, yeah, just there. So when whenever you walked out the front gates of that um, that spot that we relocated to in truca there, I always had one eye of where my grandfather used to live and just walked past.
1: It was pretty cool. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Mm. And I guess... Good or bad, depending on how you look at it. Uh, when we first moved, we had no laundry facilities, we had no kitchen. Uh, waiting for all that to come in. But the upside is we got to spend money in the local town and go to the pub every night for dinner. Well, that's the thing. We <laughs> we not only we
0: not only left sweat and and um, time there. We, we left our hard earned cash there as well. You know, we we put back into the community.
1: Exactly. And uh, on the last day, I got to go to St. Anne's uh, Distillery there. Oh, have I've you seen that. No, we, I've we, never been there. We, we, did a, we did a sneaky trip, a couple of us, and bought a couple <laughs> of bottles of port for the, for, the, for the trip home, which was nice. Yeah. Uh, very good port there.
0: Mm, I must have. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm heading down there. I think I'm going to head down there for the Christmas um, holiday festival season. Now that you've mentioned that, I'm going to have to go there and just um, get myself a bottle too.
1: You won't be disappointed. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I want to bring one other thing up with you and if if you feel comfortable to talk about it, um, you did say you had a little bit of a hard time getting out of the army. I want to talk, I want to chat a little bit about resilience and, you know, kind of what you do to keep yourself in check now. And if it's okay, I'd like to talk a little bit about Disaster Relief Australia and what that has done for you personally
0: yeah so when i got out it was kind of you get spat out of this of this beast and then it's i'd kind of liken it to i don't know if you've seen the matrix but you get unplugged and then boom you're this raw shell but you've got all these skills that don't plug into this other place now like this civilian world like it's not so my experience of um, getting out wasn't a pleasant one i felt kind of empty bit lost but luckily i was at the luckily I, the age that i was i had a few trades you know i had my tiling trade and i had my personal training certificates so i had those to lean on um and then for a little while i spit in my feet but then I leant on those things and, and started to gain traction and I had purpose and then I had income and, um, and I also had my wife as well. Yeah, getting out and I was still battling with the disappointment of not sort of fulfilling my role towards the end there because I was a rifleman but I ended up getting medically discharged and I felt like I let a lot of guys down but it was kind of out of my control. So the whole getting out thing wasn't the best experience that I yeah that I had and I had other friends that that they got out and that one particular friend he got out and then six months later he couldn't find a job he couldn't really assimilate with these civilian people because they they take things to heart and there's no there was no like action for stuffing up like if you're stuffed up you just get a slap on the wrist and we weren't used to that but he he ended up enlisting again and he thought he was going to get plugged back into six uh, uh back into eight nine and they said no you won't get plugged into eight nine so he just thought he was going to get plugged into six rar and stay in brisbane but he didn't he went to uh he got plugged back in and he had to do two years minimum and he was shipped off to townsville <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> yeah. and i'm like oh no and i'm like why why did you do it because i needed a job it was just easy so, yeah, he did. He did two years up there. I went and went and saw him a couple of times when he was up there. But he did his two years up there, and
1: then he eventually got out. Fair enough. What What do you do now that you're out? Because you know, being first responder myself, you know, I see and I hear a, a lot of really traumatizing things. Um, I mean, just balancing work and family life and everything that you've done. <coughs> what do you do to keep yourself in check? Well, I think
0: um, I. I I stay active. I'm somebody that if if I don't do something physical that I'm creating a sweat, that kind of physical, if I don't do that within two days, I'm not a pleasant person to be around. I need that endorphin release. And also I've I've got that underlying mission in my head that I need to help someone and I've got skills that I can use to help people. So I think to keep things in check, I, I well, I'm part of DRA and I plug into there and I'm I'm part of the leadership team here in Brisbane and we do training, um, recruiting and I'm and I'm quite handy with the chainsaw. So we do skills weekends and then I'm around some like minded people. I'm, I'm around army guys that were in before me and have been have been out for a while and also new new guys that have just got out. So we reminisce of what it used to be like. And there's navy guys and, and army girls and all kinds of stuff. And we hang shit on them and they hang shit on us. And it's just, it's a really good place to be. Mentally, it helps to be around those kind of people. I think that helps keep you in check as well.
1: Yeah, perfect. Is there any advice for people wanting to join the Army or join DRA that you can provide them with?
0: I think if I was to go in again, really research the job that you're going in for. Reach out to some others that that hold that position. So if they're a rifleman, somehow talk to someone that that's a rifleman or that used to be a rifleman ask him all the dumb questions and research it so that when you go in you don't get blindsided and you don't get or you don't feel like you're silly and do the training switch on it's it's going to be your trade whatever you choose you're like i remember the guy saying you're a rifleman now this is your trade you're a professional start acting like a professional and you're a tradesman. So I guess if you're new and you're going into that, that's that's kind of my mindset. Maybe check out the Air Force because they don't get yelled as much. They yelled at as much. <laughs> the hotel rooms are a lot nicer as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you get I think you get ranked pretty quick there. Like I think there's no one below a I don't even know what the rank is, but you you start off with two hooks, I think. <laughs> <laughs>
1: What is it? The army sleeps under the stars. The air force picks their hotels by the stars. Yeah, that how it goes?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. The the army sleep under the stars. The navy navigate by the stars, and the air force uh, select their hotel by the stars. <laughs> five star usually. <laughs> is,
1: um, there, is there anything
0: else? Yeah, look if you if if you feel like you're. A, want to help out communities reach out to all those people like lions i don't know all those kinds of things but dra is definitely a, an, an easy fit you know like there's we're welcoming we'll give you a job we'll inspire you to bring your personality and um we just we just want to help people and, and if you're someone that wants to help then it's a good
1: fit well i really appreciate you coming on the podcast and, and sharing your story man it's been it's been too long between chats actually
0: yeah, I reckon, um, I reckon we're going to come up your way definitely next August, so I'll be hitting you up to come and hang out.
1: Sounds good, man. If we can squeeze a deployment in between now and then too, that'd be great.
0: Yeah, definitely. Hey, thanks. It's been great. Um, what an honour for you to ask me to chat to you. It's been great. I
1: appreciate you coming on, man. It's, uh, I I think the impact that we have sharing these stories, like it's the, the podcast is quite new and I wouldn't say any shape or form that i'm a professional doing this you know there's still a lot that i have to learn about editing and and podcasting and questions but um you know i feel nearly everyone we're getting better you know the important thing is is we're spreading the message and the awareness of what first responders go through we're sharing that that story of mental health we're giving the insights to these people that want to come into these roles and and a raw insight, you know, some there's good and bad. It's not always what you see on the TV. A lot of these, mm. even the ambulance shows that we see on TV, you know, they're with these guys for film crews for three months and they pick out the best eight hours, you know, within that three months and yeah, and show you the best stuff. Yeah, so, I, I, I really appreciate you taking time and coming on and, and authentically sharing your story.
0: No, it's great. And uh, if there's something I can do to help support you on this journey, just shout out. So, yeah, I, I think it's great and um i think you do well yeah like you said before you're not you're not a professional but keep cracking at it and you'll get better as you as you do
1: things that's um, it mate yeah happy days i appreciate it i think we'll leave it at that that was okay. uh mitchell australian army veteran yeah yeah i'm a veteran <laughs> <laughs> that like, was a weird thing when i got out i just, someone called me a veteran
0: and i'm like i'm not a veteran i'm i'm a young i'm a young guy like what what are you talking about i was 35 And then I think I was talking to my mum and she goes, yeah, honey, you're a veteran now. I'm like, but I'm not old. She goes, yeah, but you're a military veteran. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) It finally dawned on me. I'm like, yeah, I'm a veteran.
1: (laughs) Thanks for coming on, Mitch. I really, really appreciate it, buddy. No problem. You have a good time and talk to you soon. Thanks, mate. Cheers.
0: Yeah. Thank you for tuning in to the Priority Zero podcast. We greatly appreciate your dedicated listenership. If you are interested in being featured as a guest on our show, we welcome you to reach out to us through our official channels on Facebook or Instagram. Alternatively, you can contact us via email at contact at priorityzero.com.au. We value your support in helping us spread these compelling stories to a wider audience. Kindly consider liking and sharing these episodes, as it plays a crucial role in our mission to reach as many people as possible we mm-hmm.